Hey, and welcome to um, another edition of Talking MMT. Uh, I'm still reading, as I will be for a while. <laughs> a great, uh, the really interesting um, book by Jesse Tilson called The Depths of Myth. You can get that in any bookstore. Um, if you want delivery, yeah, you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, but I do recommend going to a local book, bookstore if you have any by you and buying the book. Anyway, so let's see, I'm on. Um, I think I'm in chapter four, and I'm on page one twenty-five. Um, now, as if you're uh, um, following me, anyway, uh, borrowing in the currency may tend to you issues. Okay, this is about I'm talking about the European Central Bank right now. Uh, here, um, the UK and all of Europe, but uh, I believe the UK is the actual currency issuer, while the rest are currency users, like. Um, states here are currency users and that they can't print the money. Anyway, uh, borrowing in a currency they tend to issue open Eurozone nations up to the kind of interest rate pressures predicted in the conventional crowding out story. Something similar tends to happen when countries tether the value of their dom uh, domestic currencies to gold or tie them to the other currencies, to some other currencies rather. That is, fix their exchange rates. Russia and Argentina, for example, once pledged to convert their domestic currencies, rubles and pesos respectively, into uh, U.S. dollars at a fixed exchange rate. The problem is that in order to defend the exchange rate peg, the government has to give up control of the interest rate. Here's what happened in Russia. You could hold the domestic currency, the ruble, or you could ask the central bank to convert the rubles into something else. You can swap the rubles for U.S. dollars as at the fixed exchange, or you could use your rubles to buy Russian government bonds known as uh, GKOs, as Forstater and Mosler observed. Um, government securities can be thought of as competing with the conversion to U.S. dollar option, dollars option. As long as most people were willing to hold rubles or GH, or sorry, GKOs, things worked pretty well. The Russian government could issue both, but all hell broke loose in '98 when suddenly everyone wanted U.S. dollars as demand for GKOs evaporated. The price of Russian bonds collapsed and yields rose sharply just as the Greek government was incapable of preventing a spike in borrowing costs. Countries that fixed their exchange rates sacrificed, sacrificed control of their interest rates from the from the MMT perspective. This explains the very high interest rates paid by governments with perceived default risk and fixed exchange rate regimes in contrast to the ease a nation such as Japan has in keeping Raise as zero and a floating exchange rate regime. Despite deficits that were undermined, that would undermine a fixed exchange rate regime, the lesson is simple: currency regimes matter. The simple crowding out story was built for a world that no longer existed or exists. See, a conventional economic theory treats the sequence of falling dominoes. Uh, as a consequences of uh, pretty much guaranteed consequence of deficit spending. The truth is, the story has limited applicability. As Timothy Sharp put it, financial crowding out theory was initially proposed and analyzed in the 
context of the convertible transit system, that is the gold standard and the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate agreement of 46071, taking into account different currency regimes changes everything. That's what Sharp discovered in a sweeping uh, empirical investigation where he separated countries that fit the MMT model, that is, those with monetary sovereignty, from those that fix their exchange rate or borrow in a foreign currency. Consistent with MMT, he concluded that the imperial uh, evidence, evidence reveals crowding out effects in non-sovereign sovereign economies, but not with, within sovereign economies. In other words, it's a mistake to apply the crowding out story to the monetary sovereigns like the U.S., Japan, the U.K., or Australia. The truth is, government deficits aren't the villains of progress. They don't make it harder for the private sector to borrow and invest. In almost all cases, they make it easier. That's because Uncle Sam's deficits feed dollars into our pocket, our bucket, our pocket, whichever way you want to look at it. Whether those dollars arrive in the form of tax cuts or increased spending, they leave some of us with greater spending power, and spending is the lifeblood of capitalism. Without it, businesses would have no customers, no sales revenue, and no uh, profits to keep them afloat. As Nobel, Nobel Prize-winning economist William Vickery put it, well-targeted deficits will generate added disposable income, enhance the demand for the products of industry, and make private investment more profitable. In other words, well-designed fiscal policies, including those that increase fiscal deficits, can catalyze, can catalyze private investments, sparking a virtuous cycle that leads to the crowding out, crowding in of private investment rather than crowding it out. Now is actually the last portion of chapter four, uh, 126. Next chapter is five, obviously, winning at trade. The myth number five, the trade deficit means America is losing. Reality portion of this, America's trade deficit is stuffed surplus. Is it stuffed surplus? I remember watching Donald Trump battle his way through Republican primary debates with my, with my son Bradley, who was just nine years old at the time. It was 2015 and Trump was blustering on about trade, complaining that countries like Mexico, China, and Japan were ripping us off and vowing to bring an end to the thievery if voters would put him in the White House. It became a central theme of his campaign. We are losing the trade war against foreigners. We don't win anymore. Uh, Trump thundered during a 2015 primary debate in Cleveland, Ohio. We, beat, we don't beat China in trade. We don't beat Japan with the millions and millions of cars coming into this country in trade. It's a message that resonated with millions of Americans, especially in states like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Wisconsin, where many voters traced the, uh, the hollowing out of their communities and the loss of good-paying jobs to import competition and rising trade deficits. As president, Trump remained obsessed with the gap, um, gap between imports and exports. That is, America's trade deficit with the rest of the of the world. Uh, to him, the trade deficit is prima facie 
turn out thus seeing uh, evidence that America is losing at trade. On the other hand, he sees the losses in monetary terms, tweeting, quote, the United States has been losing for many years, 600 to $8 billion a year in trade. With China, we lose $500 billion. Sorry, we're not, doing, we're not going to do that anymore. The, pro, the problem he seems to believe is that foreigners are running off with our money, and when he looks at the real terms of, terms of trade, the actual goods that are being traded between Americans and foreigners, he, uh, he again sees America getting the raw end of the trade deal. In exchange for millions of cars, Japan is sending it. Trump explains in August 2019, we send them wheats, wheats that's a good deal. That's not a good deal. At that point, my son Bradley, then 13, turned to me with a pleasant, puzzled look and said, so the problem is that we take their cars and they only take our wheat. That would be like me giving Ian two of my low-value trading cars and getting ten of his high-value cars in exchange. I would be very happy with that deal. Viewed from this perspective, you could say that a country wins by maximizing its benefits or imports and minimizing its costs exports, but that would imply counterintuitively that America's roughly $700 billion trade deficit is evidence the United States is already winning at trade. Could this be right? Does Trump have a complete have a completely back, uh, backwards? Instead of using tariffs to wage a war, or wage a trade war, aimed at reducing the volume of goods coming into the United States from China and elsewhere, should the U.S. be tra trying to run even bigger trade deficits? Would that make us the uh, undisputed global trade champions? As well as as we'll see, as we'll see, it's much more complicated than the simple black and white of winning and losing in trade. So why do so many Americans feel like everyone is killing us when it comes to trade? In the word jobs, as Richard Trumpka, the leader of the largest federation of unions, explained to Trump just one week before his inauguration, bad trade deals have cost. Millions of Americans are good-paying jo uh, union jobs. Entire communities have lost their purpose and identity until the president-elect, and we have we have to fix that. He vowed to support Trump's commitment to renegotiating a North American trade deal, sorry, uh, North American free trade agreement, NAFTA, and other deals, saying working people are looking for a new ways and for a new way forward on trade. Uncle Sam by the ankles. Just like many workers in America, millions of workers in China, Japan, and elsewhere depend on their jobs and their livelihoods. If demand for the, for the things they helped produce suddenly drives up, their jobs could disappear. That's why we often hear politicians and unions urging consumers to buy American or pressing companies like Ford or Apple to manufacture more of their products in the United States. When Americans spend money bearing, uh, buying, or bearing, excuse me, buying things that are produced abroad, the demand support jobs in Europe and other parts of the world instead of sustaining jobs here at home. In '94, when President Clinton signed NAFTA, ushering in a new era of free trade, life has gone steadily worse for millions of Americans as industrial corporations have relocated their production centers to Mexico and eventually to countries beyond North America. They could pay workers in lower wages. Millions of good-paying union jobs have disappeared. China's first accession into the World Trade Organization in, 20, in 2001 wreaked 
similar havoc on the U.S. working class. Economists at the Economic Policy Institute has concluded that China's demand for U.S. exports may have supported 138,000 American jobs from 2001 to 2011, but Japanese imports into the U.S. cost more than 3.2 million Americans their jobs for a net loss of 2.7 million jobs. On top of that, to the extent that those displaced workers were able to find new employment, the new jobs paid an average of 22.6% less than what they were earning before. This kind of trade-driven displacement has gutted entire regions where manufacturing was the economic livelihood of large numbers of communities. It has also forced great swaths of Americans to into permanent involuntary unemployment or a sinister cycle of low-wage service jobs, and it came uh, against a backdrop in which neighborhoods and towns were already profoundly disrupted a decade earlier by corporate farm consolidations. Those communities would go on to be pummeled again during the following decade via the China-related WTO trade shocks, during which many of the heralded consumer benefits of expanding trade with Beijing came with substantial adjustment costs in many regional labor markets in which the industries exposed to newly expanded competition from China were concentrated. Less years later, the Great Recession of 2008 would deal another lethal round of job losses. By the time Trump came to town in 2016, his fear-mongering among migrants and scaremongering about the trade deficit found a receptive audience among workers already besieged by an economic calamity after another. Consequently, for many of these workers, there were seemingly nothing to lose but uh, nothing to lose by embracing Trump's call to arms, win at trade, bring jobs home, and make America great again. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party uh, mounted a tone-deaf response. Hillary Clinton's campaign marketed a blue baseball cap bearing the slogan, America is already great. Perhaps Secretary Clinton felt boxed into a corner, and so her campaign adopted a strategy of largely ignoring the voters who've been crushed by Americans, by America's trade relationships and the cumulative misery associated with them, rather than lying out a compelling plan to restore good-paying jobs and help uh, struggling communities. Top Democrats simply gave up, and many working-class voters. For example, senior minority, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer argued for every blue-collar Democrat William Lewis in western Pennsylvania, he will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs of in Philadelphia. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin. It was a losing strategy for the Democratic Party. Having won the election in 2016, Trump has continued to stick with the message that the U.S. is locked in a losing competition when it comes to trade. Even some of his preemptive opponents echoed those Senate senior, uh, senior, <laughs> he's a senior for that by the point. Senator Bernie Sanders, for example, had tweeted, quote, it's wrong to pretend that China isn't one of our ma- major economic competitors. When we are in the White House, we will win that competition by fixing our trade policies, unquote. Certainly, Sanders aimed and still aims to fix trade policies by protecting workers and the environment, yet there is a tinge of anxiety that progressives share 
with conservatives, the fear of the trade deficit itself. The truth is, a trade deficit is not in and of itself something to fear. America doesn't need to zero out its trade deficit to protect jobs and rebuild communities. As long as the federal government stands ready to use its fiscal capacity to maintain full employment at home, there is no reason to resort to a trade war. Instead, we can envision a new world trade order that works better. Not for corporations seeking to exploit cheap labor and escape regulations, but for millions of workers who received such a raw deal under previous free trade policies. In the post-NAFTA era, re-envisioning trade also can lead to better policies for developing countries and for the global investments. Three buckets. One way to think about trade imbalances is to add a third bucket to the model we used in the last chapter. Previously, we put Uncle Sam in one bucket and everyone else in another. Whenever Uncle Sam spent dollars, there was only one place for them to go, into a collective bucket we called the non-government spend sector. There was a perfectly uh, reasonable way to uh, illustrate the fact that Uncle Sam's deficits poured dollars into our buckets. Now it's time to look more closely at the non-government bu- uh, bucket. Since this chapter is about international trade, we will we want to see how dollars flow between the U.S. economy and the rest of the world. To that, we need to split the non-government bucket into two separate buckets. When we do this, we end up with a trade bucket model. We still have the U.S. government bucket, but now we have a bucket that belongs to all U.S. households and businesses i.e. domestic private sector bucket, along with one that along with one that belongs to the rest of the world, i.e. the foreign sector bu- bucket. As before, it's impossible for all the buckets to be in a surplus or deficit at the same time. If there's red ink in one bucket, there must be black ink in, in another, and uh, at least one another, one other bucket. As Gandhi told told me. Everything must go from somewhere and then go somewhere. For every payment that flows out of one bucket, a payment of equal size must be received into at least one other bucket. As a matter of accounting, that means that the balance across all three buckets must always sum to zero. In the real world, dollars flow among these three buckets every day. If the U.S. government buys some bulldozers from the Caterpillar Inc. and hires some American workers to build a bridge, dollars will flow into the private sector bucket as the government makes those payments. Americans, uh, American workers and most of the U.S. businesses also pay federal taxes, so Uncle Sam subtracts some of those dollars away from the private sector bucket. To keep it simple, suppose, as before, the Uncle Sam spent 100 and taxes 90 away, leaving behind a surplus of 10 in the private sector bucket. Those dollars will spin around in the U.S. private sector, changing hands as Americans pay for the haircuts, theater tickets, and college tuition. They can, all, they can also switch buckets as Americans import products from abroad. Let's say American spends $5 buying goods and services from the rest of the world, while foreigners spend $3 buying productions and products from the United States. By importing most more than an export, the U.S. is running a trade deficit. 
when all is said and done, the trade that you, the U.S. trade deficit transfers two dollars into the foreign sector bucket. Exhibit nine. Oh, sorry, that's good. <laughs> uh, nets all these payments out, showing that U.S. government's fiscal deficit minus ten exact is exactly balanced by the sum of the surpluses in the other two buckets. As long as the U.S. economy remains at full employment, there is no inherent problem with this outcome. Since Uncle Sam is the issuer of the dollar, he never has to worry about running low. This bucket can manufacture dollars at will, but everyone else has to get the currency from somewhere. And the U.S. private sector normally wants to accumulate more than that in spending, that is, to be, a, to be in surplus. That's not to say that the private sector can't fall into deficit. It can, as it did during the 1990s and early 2000s, but as Gandhi warned, that's usually an unsustainable situation because it often is involves the private sector taking on too much debt. Remember, the private sector isn't a currency issuer. It's, it's certainly a deficit weight. I'm sorry. Sustained deficit weight. Uh, Uncle Sam can. Isn't a currency issuer, so it can't sustain deficit. So, okay, yeah, the way Uncle Sam can, I read that wrong. To keep the U.S. private sector from falling into deficit, someone needs to supply the bucket with enough dollars to keep it in surplus. Right now, that someone is Uncle Sam. That's because the U.S. runs persistent to trade deficits, aka stuffed surpluses, which could, which causes or which cause dollars to flow out of the private sector bucket and into the foreign bucket. As long as, rem as that remains the case, only Uncle Sam can su supply enough dollars to keep the private sector in a surplus. To do that, the government must run budget uh, deficits that exceed the trade U.S. trade deficits. Uh, uh, let's see, in, um, in in this example, the government has almost balanced its budget, but not quite. Uncle Sam is running a small deficit, spending $100 into the U.S. economy, and taxing $99 back out. And as a result, his deficit adds just $1 to the private sector. But the U.S. is sending that dollar and four more onto the rest of the world, and foreigners are, are only sending $3 back. So the U.S. is running a trade deficit, spending $5 on goods and services produced by the rest of the world, but only collecting $3 for, the, for these things as well as abroad. Looking at, the, and looking at all these payments, the foreign sector accumulates a $2 surplus while the government and the private sector each end up with $1 deficits. A private sector deficit is the consequences of the allow, uh, consequence of allowing the government deficits to fall below the trade deficit. What would it take to return the private sector to its usual state of surplus? One option is for you, uh, is for Uncle Sam to add more dollars to the private sector's budget uh, bucket. Either by spending more dollars into the U.S. economy or taxing a few dollars away, as soon as the government deficit gets bigger than the trade deficit, the, the private sector's financial balances or balance will move back into surplus. Another way to eliminate the private sector's Deficit is to try to shrink or reverse the trade deficit. There are numbers of ways to try to do this. Sometimes uh, countries try to hold down the value of their currency to make their goods more competitive on the world market. President Trump has routinely lashed out at, at China 
accusing the China government and Chinese government of manipulating its currency. The yuan is gain, uh, to gain an advantage over U.S. producers. In December 2019, accused Brazil and Argentina of uh, presiding over massive devaluation of the currency, which is not good for our farmers. Some countries don't have the, don't have the option to weaken their currency. <clears throat> countries in Europe, for example, have a form uh, formed the currency union, the Economic Monetary Union, or EMU, making it possible to uh, make it possible to uh, to alter the value of their currencies vis-a-vis uh, one another, uh, or uh, one euro equals one euro through the eurozone. When exter- when external, i.e., currency devaluation is an option, countries often pursue internal devaluation as a way to try to win at trade. The neoliberal term of art of, for this uh, particular strategy is uh, structural reform. It's a polite way of describing an agenda aimed at driving down labor costs, wages, and pensions to increase competitiveness by reducing the cost of production. Essentially, it means that a country uses uh, a country uses weaker labor as a substitute for a weaker currency. When it comes to the strategy of Germany and Europe's foster poster child. After the German government committed to this strategy in early 2000s, it was able to replace its long-standing trade deficits with a massive trade surplus. Uh, see. The thinking of behind Trump's policy was to use tariffs, i.e. taxes on imports, to reduce the U.S. trade deficit by, by, by making certain foreign goods more expensive, Trump believes believes he is is pursuing an American-first strategy that will result in American consumers buying fewer imports and spending more money buying domestically produced goods. That would mean mean fewer dollars leaving the U.S. private sector bucket and flowing into the foreign bucket. Trump sees that as winning because his entire worldview is shaped by cash cash flow. The one with the biggest bucket of the money wins. And he recognizes the importance of maintaining a healthy a financial balance, but views the tariffs as largely uh, counterproductive. As does MMT, recognize that imports are real benefits. If you view the, this way, Trump's tariffs are really a tax on U.S. benefits. There are better ways to maintain a healthy balance in the private sector, as well as better ways to protect American jobs. Well, we'll leave it there. For the day, I'm talking MFP. Uh, remember, I'm on 136 page and in the fifth chapter. I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe. Please become a monthly nine cent subscriber to my channel, uh, or that you can go to uh, my YouTube at YouTube.com/slash/t/slash/brainparty and socialist news channel. Uh, subscribe there. Subscribe here, uh, and also. Uh, Coming up, I will be having a talking financially where I report the um, regular, regulatory reports of the Fed and other uh, agencies and anything else financially that's going on in the market and my opinion on that. Anyway, as a, um, a non-expert on, the econ- on uh, economic finances, only a learner of MMT and trying to figure out uh, where uh, I think MMT would fit in as part of the other than the 
redoing of the, the American economy. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Subscribe today for 99 cents. My voice is going out apparently. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah, there it is. Um, anyways, again, uh, thanks for listening. Um, 99 cents, that's all it takes to become a, a full-fledged member of the of my anchor crew, I guess you could say. Uh, but anyways, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again uh, here momentarily about, and I'm about uh, talking financially. Peace out for now.